Hello and welcome to ASTCT Talks, the official podcast of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. We chat with industry leaders from all areas of the blood and marrow transplantation and cellular therapy field, including doctors, physician assistants, pharmacists, nurses, administrators, social workers, and more. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of ASTCT Talks. I'm Rachel Schulmeyer, content coordinator with ASTCT and host of today's episode. In this special episode, I'm joined with co-host Samantha Waters, who is research and provider education lead at NMDP, and she hosts their Explore Cell Therapy podcast, which we will provide a link to in the episode description. She has her master's in health education and is finishing up a PhD studying communication and care coordination between hematology, oncology, and transplant providers. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. Of course. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Mike Niles, author of Hard Graft, Our Fight Against Killer Blood. Mike is a nonprofit director in the UK, with 12 years of experience in leadership roles for health, community, and international development charities. Mike discovered the world of transplantation by accident. Signing up to a bone marrow register, he began researching the origins out of curiosity and found that this story had never fully been explained. Not a particularly science-minded person, although he had to quickly learn, Mike set out to research and document the events for the very first time. We're excited to navigate the inspiring aspects of transplant origin stories and reflect on the advancements in transplantation that have improved access and outcomes over the years. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me and really looking forward to speaking with you both. Of course. Mike, your recent work focuses on the history of the Anthony Nolan Bone Marrow Transplant Register, highlighting the story of Liz Bostick. Could you provide some insights into Liz's journey and the pivotal role she played in the establishment of the register? Yeah, absolutely. Um, To do so, we have to go back quite a few years to sort of the early 1970s. Um, And the situation around blood disease was very, very different to what it is today. So in the sort of 1950s, 1960s, um, a child diagnosed with a blood disease had roughly a one in 10 chance of surviving to adulthood. Um, the, you know, the chances were pretty slim. It was very much uh, a learning uh, environment. And then by the end of the 1980s, that survival chance for the same blood disease was nine in 10 chance. So over those 20 to 30 years, there was a massive transformation of survival chances for someone diagnosed with um, blood diseases. Um, And so that all stems really from um, the work of incredible physicians and researchers. But this mother, Liz Bostick, in London, um, in the UK, where her son was diagnosed with CGD, which is chronic granulatomous disease. It's an immune deficiency. It's X-linked, so it's from the X chromosome of the mother. Um, And it is until, like, the, the time we're talking almost always um, sadly a death sentence. Uh, There were no treatments, there was no 
understanding really of how to how to solve the glitch in the circulatory system. Um, and, you know, without giving away too much detail of the book, um, Liz Bostick was the mother of two boys. And um, there was one boy called Simon, who was the surviving child. Um, both boys had CGD. And the reason he was the surviving child is he is the first person in the world to receive a successful, unrelated bone marrow transplant from um, someone who wasn't in his family. So the, the first person ever where it actually worked. Um, and from that, there was a huge, huge media frenzy basically in, in the UK to try and first of all, find this match. So there was, he was front page of the newspapers, Liz Bostick took this campaigning far and wide. Um, and then they managed to find the donor because of the media. And then subsequently, uh, fast forward a few years, the newspapers, talked about the success and talked about this is a world first and this is incredible. And that went international because there were no, there were no successful solutions to these kind of diseases anywhere in the world. And the newspaper was read in Adelaide by a woman called Shirley Nolan, whose son had um, severe um, blood disease that, that basically was a, a ticking time bomb, sadly. Um, she she read this story in Adelaide in Australia, jumped on a plane almost immediately, flew to London, stormed into the department where the, the Bostick family had had their transplant and basically said, right, you need to provide this transplantation for my son. Um, so that's a long way around of saying the knock-on effect and why the Anthony Nolan register started because Shirley basically took the baton from Liz Bostick who had sort of started this media campaign, got people to sign up to potentially donate their stem cells um and Shirley Nolan came along and basically professionalized the whole thing turned it into an actual register in 1974 massively expanded the number of people signed up so the opportunities and the chances for other young people or older people um to get a, a donor were hugely changed and that is the first ever bone marrow transplant register and then it was sort of emulated and expanded upon around the world um, work was going on in different countries around the world. And I think, you know, we can talk about that a bit more with the US in mind. Um, but that was the first place that it actually formalized. It actually became a thing and it showed what was possible. Wow, it's it's really amazing to hear how um, how involved the media was in that process of spreading the word and sort of getting this truly amazing scientific discovery out to the masses in ways that, you know, dedicated citizens can then move the process forward and expand this access to all. It's, it's really incredible. And um, NMDP has a similar story uh, about a little girl named Laura Graves, who was diagnosed with leukemia. And really her father, um, you know, demanded the same sort of treatment, saw these things, sparked the creation of our U.S. registry, um, the, the NMDPB, the match registry in, in 1986. Um, and you can actually hear more about that on Explore Cell Therapy in our um, Advances in Transplant Over Time episode, if there's any interest. But, um, but now, you know, we've got NMDP and Anthony Nolan Foundation and their collaborators. We have all these different registries internationally around the world. Um, you know, how did we go from this place of having no 
donor registries for blood and marrow transplant to multiple national and international registries like these um, across across the world where you can find an unrelated donor. Yeah, I, it's incredible. And I think from basically up until the 70s, until this this uh, transplantation that happened to the young boy, Simon Bostick, Liz's son, the funding towards this sort of treatment was on a knife edge, like in the UK and in Seattle at the Fred Hutchinson, where Don Thomas was doing all his work with his teams. There was no success. And so the funding that was coming in was almost going to be pulled like there was nothing to show for all the work they were putting in um so it was so close to just not happening so when you when you sort of say what was the thing that changed everything I think because it worked that one time it just bred confidence that actually there's something in this and we need to keep at this because up until that point it was very divisive in the medical world like there were people who looked at Don Thomas and Reiner Storb and people at the Fred Hutcher were basically like what are you guys doing? Like, this isn't working. You, you, you're persevering with this, but you've got no evidence to show it's working. And then they had this, this glimmer of hope in the UK. And then, as you mentioned, you know, Bob Graves was in the similar vein as Shirley Nolan, in a similar vein as Liz Bostick, just an absolute, you know, absolutely committed to just getting people together and almost like grabbing people by the scruff of the neck and being like, what are we going to do about this? Um, and I found it so interesting during the research, like the similarities between himself and and the the other parents that are in the story, who um, basically had to navigate the quite tricky world of hospitals and you know researchers and physicians and in these topics that are so complex and so difficult to understand for like the lay person, like just Joe Bloggs in the street, right? Um, but I do think it was just that glimmer of hope, this work we've been doing for so long that people are really questioning the validity of it, actually is now starting to show some success and that lives are being saved and extended and the quality of life is changing. Um, and, you know, like Laura had her transplant um, and, you know, sadly she, she did uh, pass away a few years later, but it showed that glimmer of hope that, you know, there is something in this and we need to pursue this. Um, and obviously like anything from those foundations, there were tweaks and changes and perfections made and, you know, advancements year on year on year. Um, and I think that's one of the things I found absolutely fascinating. And it, during the research of this book, I spoke to so many um, incredible medical minds in Seattle, in Washington, DC, in the UK, in other places around the world. And just the commitment that it took from those people to just stick at it and really believe in it. And um, obviously years later, we can look back and say how impressive that work was. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. I, I think, and I think as we've sort of taken a dive into these stories, the way things have evolved from you know, no donor registries now to multiple national, international registries. And with just some of all these tri trials and triumphs and, and now it sticks out to me, these where we have, we have these glimmers of hopes, as you say. And I, as I, as I think about that, I, I know there's a lot to, I guess, celebrate and be inspired by as we're looking at these stories. And so 
guess I'm curious, what aspects of these origin stories do you find most inspiring? And going with that, how do you think sharing those narratives can contribute to raising awareness about the importance of bone marrow donation? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I think through all the research, there were so many little things and little moments where I was, I'm not a sciencey person, right? So I came at this very like, oh, wow, this is a lot of information. Um, but if I can get excited about it, I think that shows that there is something out there that everyone can. And, you know, the circulatory system and functioning blood is absolutely critical to all of us. And it just surprised me how quickly and how e easily in some way there could be a glitch in the system and it could then all of a sudden be very, very important to any one of us. Um, I think from the origin story, the thing that really stood out throughout were the people involved and you know obviously the science was incredible the developments the the intricacies the, all the tiny little changes over time but i think the people involved and that's not just um the parents who were battling to create this register and going out and campaigning to try and i think there was one there was one story of shirley nolan in london she was protesting outside westminster with a big placard and trying to get people to sign up to the register and get politicians to outside the houses of parliament in london to try and pay attention and she got arrested because she was disturbing the peace. And by the end of her time in a cell, half of the police force had signed up to the register. Just these really persuasive, incredible people doing this stuff. But on the flip side, I spoke to a lot of incredible physicians and researchers who sometimes there's a bit of a them and us, right? The people who are the, the medics, the researchers, the scientists, who, and then the patients. And I think one thing that really stood out about the origin story was that these people involved really felt it you know they were they were responsible for some of these treatments that I, I, I tried to write in my book I, I tried to give a bit of the graphic detail without going too far they weren't particularly pleasant treatments you know they and they were responsible for putting a, a lot of the time these young children these these small bodies through this really traumatic and you know terrifying and and questionable in some instances, treatment. Um, and they felt it, you know, they they struggled with it on a personal level, like seeing so much suffering, seeing so much death, seeing so much failure. A lot of it was trial and error. I think one of the things that really stood out during this, this you know, very distinctive period in history is that um, they, they were just people, you know, who, as well as being incredibly intelligent and incredibly specialist in hematology or in, you know, different kinds of treatment that were the radiology or whatever, um, they felt it and they took it home with them and they had to come back to work the next day, dust themselves down and do it all over again. Um, I spoke to so many incredible people and, and also the humble nature of the people who, many of them, because it's recent history, are still alive today, many of them still practicing and still researching. And um, I was really honoured to meet Jim Till in uh, Toronto, who is one of the people, very few people who's credited with um, explaining the functionality of a stem cell for the very first time. So proving what a stem cell does and obviously the knock on effects that had on the treatment on treatments, not just for um, blood disease, but everything essentially. And I'm just with him in a Tim Hortons, getting a coffee and no one around knows who this guy is. And I'm just having, I'm geeking out. I'm having this real weird moment of like, you know, we think in society, the people we celebrate 
won't mention names, but celebrity, you know, who don't necessarily do as much cool and amazing stuff for society as these people. And they're just unknowns. And they'll always say, oh, yeah, you know, what I did was was really cool. But these other people are doing more cool stuff. Or there's these scientists now who are doing this stuff. Um, and it just really, I think one of the things that really stuck with me when researching this and when learning more about it is, is the people and their stories and their involvement and how, um, yeah, just just really inspiring and i hope i hope that comes across in the book but if not you know if it's not something that everyone um gets a chance to read just to know that you know these people who are doing this incredible and putting your family member or your friend or whoever through these these treatments they really feel it too and they you know um, are doing their best to advance that person's treatment or just generally the, the field wow no that's that's an incredible incredible story and so cool to get to sit down with some of these you know just giants in the industry really just I mean huge huge impacts um that have just resonated over the decades of more and more advances in the fields all starting with these this understanding of we need that basic science first right we need to know how we can translate this and what we can actually do and accomplish and then all of the, as you said, all of the patients, all of the, um, all the people that came before that were there on the front lines when, when transplant was really very experimental and scary. And um, yeah, you know. and one thing I absolutely loved exactly to your point. One thing I absolutely mm -hmm. loved finding out is some of them didn't like each other. Right. So some of them had <laughs> real rivalries, whether it was interdepartmental, whether it was in the same department, there was a huge UK US little thing going on. Mm. Um, so I think one thing that the UK teams that I spoke to got a bit annoyed about was that the US kind of wrote the history a little bit. Some of the people in Seattle, you know, they were the first, they were the biggest, they were the best. And some of the UK guys were like, hang on a second, like we were doing this at the same time. But I think one amazing thing from that is they were pushing each other on. Like if, you know, th that competition and that pressure or that sort of trying to get there first, maybe a bit like the space race or something, I don't know, that, that actually yeah. got them further on and got things advanced, maybe faster, who knows, maybe faster than it would have done had they not had that sort of, uh, should we call it friendly competition? Absolutely. No, that's that's really interesting to think about too. Um, wonder how they feel that uh, Don Thomas won the Nobel Prize then. <laughs> but no, it's um, it's incredible. And and regardless, the impact, you know, like you said, of that spurring on just means that the work got out there to help so many people and has, I mean, we've really come so far. So like, I'd love to talk a little bit more about what you found out about what those early transplants were like compared to today and you know talk a little bit about some of those major advances along the way that have led to such improved you know not only access to transplant obviously through all these donor registries but but outcomes you know beyond donor availability because as you mentioned you know the prognosis now of being diagnosed with one of these diseases that is transplantable is totally different today than it was when this was starting. So would love to, to hear some of your, the coolest insights you found and, you know, how we got from then to now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, I won't be able to go into all of them, but I think some of the ones that really stood out were, I think until 19, I think 1968 was the first time HLA was really identified and understood and then obviously understood a little bit more as the years went on. And I think that understanding and the need that we weren't trying to match blood based on blood type or something, it, that was the thing that many would either be rejected or accepted or whatever. I think another thing is the understanding of graft versus host disease that I found fascinating that, you know, in other transplantation, the donor or the host will reject the, the graft. And yet in graft versus host disease, when it comes to blood, the host is like the 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 graft can reject the host sort of thing it's like it you can be almost shut down from the inside out um because your blood gets to every bit and it will then start rejecting you from from within a little bit like a trojan horse i found that kind of stuff fascinating and i think the understanding of that and and, and speaking to some of the the researchers and scientists over the years who were responsible for tackling that and understanding that and, and working that out i just found like incredible like um like chef's kiss like mwah, that is just the super just getting to speak to those people and and hearing their thought processes they're like navigating that challenge um i think one of the the improved access thing i think over the years that really really stands out is bridging the gap of diversity on bone marrow registers um i think in the UK, so the first unrelated bone marrow transplant that was successful was the one I mentioned, Simon Bostick, in 1973. The first unrelated bone marrow transplant for a black person in the UK was in 1999, 26 years later. Wow. And, you know, a bit in the book, I go into a bit of detail of why that is. Um, mistrust or miss, um, like maybe some myths or some legend of the health services a lot of it linked to the stuff that happened in the us with henrietta Lacks and uh, different trials and treatments that obviously subsequently we know and are horrendous but legacy sort of or myths sort of pass on generationally um, and it takes some time quite a while to get out like for example people now still believe if you're going to have a bone marrow transplant you get a huge needle stabbed into your hip and it's really painful and all this kind of stuff I mean, I, I thought that before I started doing the research, like some legacies and some myths sort of take quite a while to to dissipate. So I think the the huge advancement over the years has probably been the lessening disparity um, for mixed heritage people accessing treatment. Um, it's still not equal. You know, it's still, it's still a huge issue. I, I was fortunate enough to be in Brazil um, this time last year and spoke to the bone marrow transplant register there and brazil's huge and i mean vast and so diverse as a population and so spread apart so the accessibility and getting to healthcare and um finding a match that has a similar uh, if you're mixed heritage has a similar mixed heritage to yourself is so complex and so difficult and i think until we get to a point where any person presenting with with certain needs and needing a treatment can have exactly the same as the person next to them. There's still a long way to go. But I think in terms of improved access, that's the thing I think that stands out, the understanding of that, you know, and and tackling it head on, um, I think is something that really is impressive. Um, and yeah, just commendable to keep keep at it. And there's, there's an amazing group in the UK um, 
the person who the 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 individual who received the transplant in 1999 the first black person in the uk to receive it was a, a young lad called daniel de gale and he, he received a transplant it was actually from detroit so if we talk about the the amazingness of the bone marrow transplant registers spreading around the world it's that network now that exists that obviously when they first started out they're just very much in silo and doing their things with local uh, volunteers but obviously then when the network got going you can find it find transplant find you know match donors anywhere around the world really so his donor came from detroit and um it was a a good match and everything sadly a few years later he passed away as well um but his parents basically started up this um campaign that now is a, a formal non-profit in the uk to encourage that community and dispel myths and get more people from the african caribbean community in the uk to sign up and explain why and understand that you know how important it is um, so their work continues to this day and it's incredible. Um, and I'm sure there's many other projects like that around the world um, in the US as well that are really campaigning to improve that, the outcomes for, for everyone who needs it. Absolutely. No, I, I'm so glad that you brought up the the concept of disparities and, and health equity really um, in terms of access to care um, and transplant. It's certainly an, an ongoing struggle and um, there are tons of initiatives in the, in the US through NMDP to try to encourage, um, you know, fill in those gaps in, on the registry um, and, and try to get more diversity on the registry so that we can have more successful, you know, matches when they're needed for, for folks. Um, but there's also some amazing advances that I'm not sure if you came across in your discussions in the field of transplant itself to help alleviate those gaps on the graft versus host disease side of things and really taking, um, you know, HLA is still very, very important, you know, understanding the, the components of the match, but then thinking more about haploidentical matches or half matches or, um, you know, unrelated donors who are even slightly mismatched, you know, at, um, not to get too technical, but at, at like seven of eight, you know, or nine of 10, you know, low size of interest or, or that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I'm just curious, you know, if, if that's something that came up as well, because there's so much going on in the space right now to help ensure that, those patients, you know, racially and ethnically diverse patients in need of a transplant have the best, most suitable donor available, even if they don't have a quote unquote perfect match available. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts or, or what you learned about that, if anything. Yeah, no, it's absolutely incredible what is available now and what is possible. And I think if you were to say to someone, one of the physicians and researchers back at the time, of that first, I mean, next year is 50 years since the very first bone marrow register was formed, the Anthony Nolan register. If you would have told those professionals back then 50 years ago what is possible now, it would have blown their mind, right? So, and and the book really specifically focuses on the end of the 1960s to the end of the 1980s. So a very specific period in time, but obviously with interest and understanding about cord blood and cell manipulation and gene therapy and all the things that have come in subsequent years, it's just it, it's absolutely incredible how 
those foundations that were laid by those people in the 70s and the 80s who were really you know let's be honest it was a lot of trial and error it was a lot of i mean there was a lot of experimentation on dogs particularly in seattle um and using different drugs to see how they reacted and if it it was able to immunosuppress and if all this kind of stuff if you would explain now what is possible and what is being done with the sort of the mis mismatched donors or how, however it's better to be termed haplo identical i don't know um or the technical terms but the what is possible now is just fascinating and i think obviously anything that can be done as you explained to ensure that there isn't there is equity when it comes to treatments like this um but not forgetting that while this is incredible the foundation like you stand on the shoulders of giants right the stuff that came all those years ago while now looks quite maybe archaic and maybe a little bit misguided or wrong actually has led us to where we are today um so i think that's something to really celebrate absolutely yeah, agree, agreed, hundred um, percent. And I think I I, I want to say thank you so much for your insights today and for sharing these stories. Um, and as we talk about stories of patients early on, all the struggles that have been overcome, and then just those pioneers who have been on the front lines, and just the real impact of that work getting out there um, to help and improve the lives of, you know, so many patients, patients with diverse backgrounds from all different walks of life, you know, from then to now. And I guess I'm, I, I'm really excited about the future. I think, I think there's, from my perspective, things look, they look good. And I guess I, I'm curious if you, when you think about the future of transplant, what message or key takeaways do you hope listeners gain from this podcast episode? And especially in the context of the challenges faced by bone marrow re registries today. Yeah, I, th I think it's, I agree with you. It's, it's very exciting. And just what is possible now is so um, it's inspirational, really. Like it really, it really gives hope. And I've, I've met a lot of parents and a lot of people who've been affected by, um, blood disease in a in a really challenging way and i think obviously anything that can help future families and future parents and uh, not to have to go through that same thing is is just the best um i think one thing i would say while technology is advancing and all the options are changing and and things are still available bone marrow transplantations are still a really viable and important kind of treatment um for blood disease and I think one thing that I found quite challenging, obviously the timing of this book is um, quite recent after the pandemic, is that speaking to a few bone marrow registers, the number of volunteer donors signing up since the pandemic is down by, in some cases, around 60%. Um, and while obviously there are these other options for treatment and things that are advancing all the time, it's still really important, particularly when it comes to the diversity of the register um, and, and the immediacy of needs sometimes as well. So I think one thing that's really important is that it's kind of what I said at the beginning, like this can affect any of us. And if it doesn't affect you now and you don't feel like it's relevant, it it, it could be someone, a fan, fam, family member, friend, someone who you work with, that it could be really a really important issue too. So I, I strongly still believe in the more people that are able to sign up to 
their local register, the better. There's a there's an incredible project called Swab the World that's based out of uh, Canada, I think. Um, and it's it's a sub, it's basically to try and show you wherever you are in the world, here's where your local register is and here's how to sign up and here are the contact details, etc. Um, and it was set up by someone called Maid Wong and she's um, uh, half Canadian, half Vietnamese. And she needed a bone marrow transplantation and the need for someone very specific to be that donor for her led her to then start this project. And I think, yeah, while we've got the science and got the technology and things are advancing all the time, I, I still think it's so important where we are right now to make sure people um, make sure they sign up to the register if they're willing and fit and able to do so and happy to potentially be called upon to save a life at some point. Um, and with Be The Match in the US and Anthony Nolan in the UK and others around the world, it's so important. And and they they see day in, day out the impact these volunteer donations make. So um, yeah, I think that would be the one thing. It's, it's really exciting. I still think there's a lot of work to do and I don't think we can ignore some of those um, traditional treatments and things that have proven to be really life-changing. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a position we're in compared to when this book is based sort of early 1970s. It's a completely different world and um, credit goes to the people and the scientists and the researchers and all the people who just dedicated their lives to transforming outcomes for, for patients with these challenges. I, I totally agree. And I think it's kind of just a reminder of the 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 goodness of people, like the goodness of the human heart. So these, these stories are really, really inspiring. And, and it taking a look at the past, the present, you know, the future, it's, um, it's great that we have these registries and these and, and looking at where we are, where we are now, or where we were in the beginning to where we are now. It's just, I feel I feel fortunate to kind of have a role in in this community and 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 um to be able to share stories like this. So um yeah, I I guess I also wanted to ask if there was anything that I uh, might have forgotten to touch on or if there's anything either of you would like to share. The only the only I mean again it's it's sort of it's something I just found during the research is that a lot of them incredible advancements came kind of by accident. So there was a an attack by the Nazis on the Allied troops in Bari in World War II that actually released accidentally released mustard gas that then led scientists to discover chemotherapy um, at Kettering Sloan uh, Sloan Kettering sorry <laughs> Sloan Kettering um, and there was a the the Vietnam War um, led to um, Admiral Zumwalt, who was spraying loads of Agent Orange, learned, learned that it had a had a carcinogenic effect. His son died of cancer, and he was a massive um, voice and advocate for getting the bone marrow transplant. Working with Bob Graves to get the bone marrow transplant set up in the states, and and then just one that I found really interesting. There was a a couple, a professional and love couple, um, based in Stanford called uh, Leonard and Leonor Herzenberg. And they created a, a machine called the fax uh, cell separator. And basically pump, rather than having to very, you know, they were, get, they were getting a bit older and a bit more struggling with like looking through a microscope all the time at the cells and trying to separate them manually. So they created a, a machine that basically lasered 
the cells. Again, I'm not giving the correct terminology, but it completely transformed how people could separate cells and how you can then measure uh, the different flow in a, in a circulatory system. That was used almost accidentally, not for its intended purpose, to discover HIV um, back in the 80s which obviously then went on to the, the understanding HIV and the retrovirus and how to to sort of tackle it or try to tackle it was in terms of the epidemic of HIV and AIDS in, in the 80s was transformative in terms of like, right, now we know how we're going to actually tackle this. So there were so many serendipitous moments like war to accidentally using a machine the wrong way to obviously the Vietnam War as well, like where you know, had Admiral Zumwalt not had that personal involvement, he might not have had that energy and that emphasis to be shouting on the floor of uh, Congress to the to the people to actually fund this research and get things through. So, yeah, I find it fascinating that all these little incidents and these moments in history that actually aren't great moments in history had these outcomes that actually, you know, if they hadn't happened, maybe wouldn't be here or wouldn't have happened as quickly. Um, so yeah, it's just another another little side that I found in the research that, you know, the sum of the parts is so interesting. Wow. Uh, talk about talk about your silver linings. That's <laughs> for some of these major events. That's that's amazing. Um, and I think that sort of speaks to, you know, obviously. These are, you know, some not great moments in history where we've still been able to find these amazing discoveries and have some goodness coming out of them. And, and Rachel, to your point about these registries, just sort of reminding you of, of the goodness of, of people. Um, that's something that really I find amazing about this too, because I know in conversations that I've had, like for instance, I spoke to um, Dr. Fred Applebaum at, at Fred Hutch. I'm not sure if you came across him, but he did, he worked with Don Thomas when, when he was there. And um, he said the general consensus at the time was this concept of a national registry was ludicrous, was not going to work essentially that a lot of, a lot of people in the scientific community felt like you're not going to get enough people to sign up for this just out of the goodness of their hearts, you know, to just join this registry and be willing to donate for any stranger at, at any moment. And boy, were they proved wrong. I mean, and, and amazing to see that they were proved wrong. And now we have these, these international registries, like you said, a network where, you know, you can, um, you can be in the UK and someone in the US can be your donor, vice versa, um, you know, and all of these registries now coordinate and collaborate with this common goal in mind. So it's truly inspiring um, to, to see that and see how far the field has come. But yeah, just that reminder of, you know, now more than ever, we still have those gaps and it's important to, you know, that we don't sort of take that for granted and and get a little apathetic about the whole thing and then forget that we still need to do our part and and sign up and be there for those people who need us. So I think it's a great reminder um, coming out of this conversation and your book as well. Yeah. I'm really excited. Yeah. And but now at least we know, right? So at least we are focused on bridging that gap and reducing the inequality. I read when, uh, when I was doing the research, there was a the same chance of um, Daniel de Gale, the, the 
patient in the UK who was the first black patient recipient of a donor. Um, the same chances of him finding a match was the same as him just walking down the street and getting hit by a meteor. Mm. Like the chances were so slim. And so it's it's still not good. And like you say, there's still a lot of work to do. But the fact is we know that now and we are attacking that challenge um, head on, which is, uh, you know, we're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I I guess so as we are starting to wrap up here, I just want to say thank you both so much for being a part of this discussion today. It's been it's been lovely to get to hear all of these stories, to walk to walk through the history a bit and and to really feel appreciative towards all of these efforts, all of these, um, you know, these people on the front lines and, and, and these, these trials, these triumphs, this, it, it's just really, I know, I know I've said it before, but just an inspiring story. And, and it makes me, it makes me excited for, for where we're going. And, um, so thank you both so much again for joining. It's been, it's been a, a great discussion and I appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of ASTCT Talks. Never miss an episode. Subscribe and provide reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about ASTCT, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or visit ASTCT.org.